uh, back up and running. And so just keep that in mind. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are continuing in uh, this series. Well, hold on a second. I'm going to switch, switch these out. Continuing in this series on looking at what we may talk about as the disciplines of the church as a community that flow from the identities we believe that we have as a church. Normally as a church we uh, preach and teach through books of the Bible and we'll jump back into the book of Matthew, Lord willing, when we finish this. But we think it's good at the beginning of the year especially to think about what it looks like for us to live out whom God has said that we are as his people as his church. And so we're doing this series, but we're doing it from the angle of being disillusioned. That's a word some of you may be familiar with, but if you're not, to be disillusioned with something is to be disappointed that the experience wasn't what you thought it would be. Disillusion usually has some degree of connection to whatever illusion you had. So you had this illusion that church would be this way. Or being a follower of Jesus would be this way. And now that you've been in it a little bit, you're like, that's really not turned out how I thought it would be. Is this how I'm supposed to feel as a Christian? Is this how I'm supposed to feel as a part of a church? Because this, I didn't know this is what I signed up for. And so instead of denying that and hopping over it, we want to acknowledge that as a church. And we did that in the first week by looking at our disillusionment with just the concept of the local church and our experience in it at all. Last week we looked at the disillusionment that we face as disciples who are wanting to grow in, in following Jesus in all of life. And this week we're going to look at disillusionment with this notion of the church as family. With the church as family. We're going to do this as we did each time by looking at a very disillusioning experience of the church that was taking place in Corinth. And so 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 24. You'd read along with me. I'll stand back here so you can see. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I won't. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now with the psalmist, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your law. We join in praying with Paul that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart by your spirit to the breadth and depth of your love for us. We pray, God, right now you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to be humble in your presence. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break down our defenses, our self-protective strategies, our self-redemption strategies, and that by the truth you would set us free for the fullness of life you've given us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, after dreaming of having a family for so long as a kid, one of my friends who was in foster care finally was adopted. He had dreamed of this experience of having a dad who would throw ball with him, of once again having siblings that he could enjoy life with, having a shelter, a sense of belonging. We might say in some of our language to be taken from this sort of broken and bored existence that he felt like he lived in in his, in his uh, statehood to a place of peace. What happened to my friend, though, is as he entered into a situation of family, is he found that all of these things he had dreamed actually were not met, and actually things began worse. He told me of stories of how he would move from home to home, only to be traded, treated kind of as an outcast, to, to not be shown the type of love, but to be, face the favoritism of those who were the real children in the family. He talked about abuse that he faced, verbal, physical. He talked about how he would be moved from home to home to home. And then he spoke of how this shaped his experience and his contribution to brokenness that happened in family. How he began to, to just sort of go ahead and self-sabotage the situations. He said at one point, uh, one of the new foster parents said, why aren't you unpacking your bags? And his response was, trust me, that's not necessary. He learned how to, to protect himself by hurting other people first before he could get hurt, by abandoning other people first before they could be abandoned. In his particular issue, he had something that called a reactive attachment disorder that had been formed from an early experience of families where he did not feel safe, where he did not feel loved, and where he never really felt like he belonged. Family can be very dangerous. Family can be very damaging. 
And here we are as a church saying, we're going to live as family. And we are naive or unexperienced if we do not realize that church as family cannot hurt us in some very bad ways. Humans have been created by God with this deep longing for community, for to be known, to be loved, and to belong, to live as family. This is why we've etched it into the very way that we talk about what it means for us to live as a church, to not merely gather on Sundays, but to see that through our baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have been made a part of the family of God. When we speak of our missional communities, not all of you are familiar about it, but the way that we go and live out the life of the church beyond this gathering, that the very definition of that is we are a family of servant missionaries. We want it to be so clear that we do not believe the church is defined by a place, by a program, by a pastor, or by a personality. That the biblical definition of what a church is, is it's the people of God, saved by the power of God, and dwelt with the presence of God, sent with the purposes of God. It's about being a people who have been called and gathered for God's glory and the good of the world. And yet that deep longing and that big vision and purpose that God gives sets all of us up in here for some super disillusionment. For some super disappointment. When the lonely still feel left out and you are that lonely person. When people still hold grudges, punish you, and pride grows when it feels like everybody's in too big of a hurry to actually know one another or spend time with one another, when you see that people spend more time on social media interacting with everyone else in the world than with the people that they are connected to through Christ, when people seem to be more united over political tribes or parties than Christ, when convenience seems to triumph over commitment, where we're more motivated around programs than people, when Sunday seems to be what matters more than the everyday, when titles mean more than life together, when having meals together seem like more of a hassle than something that gives hope, and then COVID-19 enters. And we got to try to figure out how to do all of this family stuff when we're told, don't be together or be together in weird ways. Imagine, even, it's not a year yet, imagine us going back a year and looking on this scene with all this mask. If we've, not, if we've got accustomed to it, this is weird. I mean, what kind of world are we living in where we're walking around wearing masks all the time? I'm going to waste time here, but I was just looking, you know, there's masks laying around our house. You know, you would have thought some type of like great chemical... Warfare had taken place. But here we are. And we're trying to love each other. We're trying to be in one another's lives. But the disillusionment then even grows even more. And some people in the world, and you can Google this online, say this for all these reasons and more. Maybe we shouldn't talk about the church's family. Maybe that's too dangerous. Maybe that's too damaging. Maybe we should just say, and I've heard this recommended, don't say family, say we're going to just try to be friends. Because the word family is a very loaded term. 
The word family is a very storied term in this room. The word family brings a lot of expectations. A lot of expectations. A lot of wounds. A lot of definitions. Me, sometimes, it's hard enough being in family with these guys right here, my family. And I'm sure it is for you and your family, in your dorm rooms. So why in the world would we want to do that with more people? I mean, if we're going to really do it and not just pretend. Because, I mean, let's be honest, this isn't really doing it right here. We know that, right, staring at the back of each other's heads and singing and listening to me. This is great, and I'm not trying to demean it. But the vision that God gives for the church is bigger than that. And that's what we have to see, that as we're disillusioned, some of you in here right now have probably gotten very cynical with the notion of church as family. And even more so in a church like ours where we actually keep talking about it. Some of you probably want to roll your eyes. Some of you, COVID has caused you to, your eyes to actually roll out of your head <laughs> when we talk about living as family. Some of you are ridden with guilt because of the notion of church as family. You're the type of person that's just walking around, oh no, we've said this, we've said this, so I better do this. And then some of you are projecting guilt onto other people because of this. This is dangerous stuff. And this is why we must see this is not some man-made idea. We've got to know the story of God, that, that God himself is a unified diversity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That in when the very character and nature of God is family. Is family language. That this notion of family is woven not merely into to our existence, but into eternity. And then when God creates the world, and He creates humanity in His image, it's no surprise that it starts with Family. And then as humanity, as a family, rebels against God, it's no surprise then that the curses come into the world that dismantle and disrupt all that God had created and designed to display His glory in this world. And this is why when God decides how He will redeem this world, how is He going to do it? He calls Abraham, but He doesn't call Abraham as an individual. He says, Abraham, through you I will have a family. And then he makes this promise that one day, Abraham, you will have a son, and through that son, this family will not merely be located in this, this geographic area and under this name of Israel, but of all the nations. Israel will fail, but Jesus will come and succeed, and through his victorious resurrection, he will birth a church that he calls family. The family of God. And this church, if we were to have time to go to Ephesians and so many other texts, Ephesians 3.10, it says that it's through the church as family, Ephesians 2, if you want to back it up into the family there, that God will display his wisdom to the world. He will show his gospel. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. 
So we must have a vision. Embrace the vision for church as family that is much deeper than our disillusion. So why should we do that? Verses 17 through 22. Because the church's family has deep flaws that breed disillusion. Deep, deep flaws. What do we see going on here? Behind this text again, we're, we've, we've done this before, the Apostle Paul is coming with a pattern. A pattern that we see in the book of Acts. A pattern that Paul at first persecuted. This is important. When Jesus, when Jesus comes to Paul on the Damascus Road and he says to Paul, why are you persecuting? He says this, why are you persecuting me? Has, had Paul been persecuting Jesus? Well, he didn't think of it that way. He'd been persecuting the local church. But Jesus speaks of the local church as himself. Because it's family, it's blood, it's body, it's bride. Paul has this, this vision about what it's going to look like when they gather together. And it's going to look like, supposed to look like Acts 2, where they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, where they break the bread, where they love one another. It's Acts 4, where they share their possessions with one another. It's Acts 13, where they send out people to go and do this in new places. And in Acts 18, he plants the church in Corinth. In the very next chapter of this book, he will speak of the beauty of the body of Christ when its members align together to serve for the glory of God and the good of the world. And yet, notice verse 17. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. <laughs> That's a pretty damning statement of a church. When y'all get together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Paul planted this church. This isn't just some like critical, distant critique. This is somebody whose blood, sweat, and tears had poured into them, living out the pattern that God had called them to. And then he points out in verses 18 through 22 kind of what the disillusioning defeaters are that take place. And the first one in verses 18 and 19 is divisions. Why is it that when they come together as family... It's really for the worse and not the better. The first thing is there's these divisions that are taking place. Notice I hear that there are divisions among you. What are these divisions? There's unreconciled relationships. There's people who have tensions. There's people who have conflicts. And the, church, the people in the church have said, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm okay with it. Just whatever will be, may be. And then he says this powerful phrase, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This is not talking about division over a doctrine per se. This is talking about a relational division. This is how we're going to see who the genuine followers of Jesus are. How do they handle conflict in relationships? We see more about a person's true theology of conversion, a doctrine of God, forgiveness, the cross, and the resurrection in relational conflict than anywhere. That's your doctrinal statement. How do you handle it when somebody else hurts you? How do you handle it when you need to forgive someone? How do you relate with people that you say you have been united with through the work of Christ. That's going to tell Paul the genuineness, if not of your faith as a whole, but your faith in reality as practice. 
I mean, Jesus said this all the time. Father, I'm going to teach them how to pray. What's part of that prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. But there's not only divisions here that are causing this disillusionment, but there's individualism. So this is verses 20 through 22. He says, first of all, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, they would say, yeah, it is. Paul's like, you can call it that, but that's not it. You can say that you're coming to the Lord's Supper, but the only Lord I see here is you. We can say we're coming to family meal, but if we come as mere individuals, it, it's just another exercise in religious activity. There's selfism that's happening here. There is consumerism and classism and groupism. This is what he's talking about in verses 21 through 22, where he's saying, in, in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So we'll, we'll touch on this in a minute. We don't have time, but the, the Lord's Supper was not like we're going to do it here in a little bit. And usually, if you're new here, we gather around tables, so we wanted to get closer to that. But really, I may just already go here. This is actually why when we have our family meals, is although we're not partaking of the bread and the cup then, as we do as the unity of the whole church, our family meals that happen during the week are the overflow from the meal that we take together on Sundays. It's not you throw away, how can we do community? No, it's an overflow of that so that we represent and reflect what we see happening in the New Testament because the church didn't gather together to partake in some sort of individualistic, you know, siloed exercise before God. They, they sat around a table with each other. And they're grouping up. People are eating more than others. People are going first. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. That's why he says in verse 22, don't you have your own houses to eat in? I mean, well, the church was meeting in a house at this point, but it's like, hey, you're just coming selfishly. It's all about you. It's all about you. Divisions and individualism have made this church a public lie about the gospel. We've heard of these churches that have, have kind of gathered together at certain times during this COVID outbreak in irresponsible fashion. They didn't take the, the reality and the power of, of this disease, and I'm sure there's several different outlooks here too, so you can send me a, a, your favorite news source later. But the reality is, is that people died. People died. And people doubted the love of God's people for the broader world. Not pointing any fingers. I'm about to point the finger at us. They said, we need to get together. It's so important that we get together. But when they got together, it was not for the better, but for the worse. Now, it's easy for some to point fingers at those, but what I want us to see is this can be true of a church that follows all the right protocols in all these areas of physical sickness, but maybe something deeper and more serious happens when churches gather together full of division and individualism. This is what this text is saying. 
It's why public health and physical health may not be compromised. Spiritual health is and a witness is. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe that's how it's been for you. Family, church as family has been messier than you thought it would be. Has been harder than you would thought it would be. And so you have bore this disillusionment inside you down to the level of demand, to the level of anger and resentment and entitlement. And what's happening is not just the experience of an individual's pain, but what happens is the integrity of the gospel is threatened through the witness of the church. We're disillusioned. I, I'm, I might be sometimes the most disillusioned among us all is what it means to be the church's family. Trust me, I would probably say I have higher expectations around that than any of y'all. But if we're not careful, we will become the very thing that we have been broken by. I want to say that again. If we're not careful in our experience as a family and in our disillusionment around that identity, we will become the very thing that we've been broken by. Nobody reached out to me like I thought they should, so I'm not going to reach out to anybody myself. Nobody pursued me, so I won't pursue nobody, anybody. I don't feel like I was loved, so I don't want love. They hurt me, I hurt them. We have got to be honest here. We've got to feel the hurt. Because all that's coming because you're not dealing with it. You've got to be able to tell the truth. It's okay to do that. As a church, we're not asking you to play pretend. You can say, this hurt me. This didn't meet my expectations. I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel alone. You don't deal with your disillusionment by coming up with a new illusion. You tell the truth. Some of you may have thought being a part of our church, we'll just all be buying groceries together all the time. We'll just be like watching... We'll just be like in each other's living room watching American Idol together, if that's even still on TV. That was in one of the old books about doing this stuff. We'll just have this open door policy in our house where people, you know, it's like, oh, hey, yeah, I'm glad to see you're sitting on my couch watching TV. And you know, really, beautifully, a lot of stuff like that has happened and is happening in our church. Whole bunch of it that we need to celebrate. Homes have been shared. People have lived together. People's debts have been paid off. Cars have been given to people. People have lived with each other. Homeless people have lived with us and found homes. We've had so many meals together. I mean, I've been a part of churches before that if you said, we're going to organize one weekly meal, some old lady would have fainted. And we got three groups that it's just normal for us outside of COVID. And even, even in COVID, to some degree, we're like, we, we eat a meal together every week. Some actual, like, biological families don't do that. We have a lot to celebrate, but in the middle of all that, sometimes it just doesn't feel like enough. Sometimes we assume that our expectations are the norm or the application of them. And sometimes we forget, and this is huge in our disillusionment, that when we come to church as family, we brought all those experiences of our biological family of origin 
whether it's biological or not, our family of origin, with us. I mean, we need to acknowledge that. Mom, dad, brothers, sisters, guardians, sometimes grandmas, the, the ghost of them walk into those situations. And so, so many of us are like saying, I need this that I didn't get there. Or I should get this like I got it there. And we're all doing that. So division comes. Individualism comes. We think of the church as family. I think this is important. I come back to this a lot. I think it's good practical proverbial wisdom. There's a, a I, don't, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. Some of you psychology folks can help me. But John Gottman has written on, on divorce predictors. And, and part of that is he talks about these four horsemen. That if, if these four horsemen are allowed to fester in a relationship, like you can just pretty much say that relationship is going to die. That family is going to not make it. These four horsemen are, the first one is criticism. I mean, these all come out of disillusionment, by the way. Criticism. Criticism is not, this isn't talking about making a, a, you know, a good critique. It's not a complaint, but it's a character thing. You never do this. You are this. You always did this. If that's a normal part of how we function and relate out of our disillusionment, deadly. Then there's contempt. The second horseman. This is your moral superiority. So this is now when you're disillusioned because others don't meet your expectations, you kind of start looking down your nose at people. You're on your high horse. You're like, I, you're, you're the person, I'm just not even going to deal with you till you get on my level. We can't even have a conversation because you don't even define things right. You, you can't even see reality. So I'm not dealing with you because I'm the one who knows what reality really is. That's contempt. Family killer. Then there's defensiveness. Defensiveness is when somebody tries to talk to you. You're just, you just care about being right and you care about keeping yourself safe. Self-protection at all costs. This is a person you talk to. It's always going to be... It's going to be the what about, what about, what about, but this. And then the last one is he calls stonewalling. This is when you just tune out. This is when you've got to that state where your heart's getting hard, stone, and so you'll just like sit and let and listen to people talk. And you're not even, you may not even be hearing what they got to say anymore. You don't care. You've become numb. If these things are not dealt with, they are family killers. They're marriage killers. They're church killers. And this disillusionment then leads to this radical individualism. It can happen in homes and in marriages. It can happen in churches. It does. And so the church becomes this fake family that is actually worse when they gather them better. But notice what Paul doesn't say. So y'all shouldn't do it. Notice what Paul doesn't say. 
I'm disillusioned with the church, the local church. So I'm just going to go find some friends who think like me at the coffee shop to hang out with. I'm disillusioned with the local church, so I'm just going to go find my people on Twitter. I'm disillusioned with the local church, so I'm going to go find some podcast to now be my pastor. Not what he says. I'm disillusioned with the local church, so now I'm going to say, well, actually, my family is my church at home. All these routes people try to take, but this is not the route that God's Word takes. It's not the route we see here in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, we're going to gather, but what are we going to gather around? What is a deeper foundation that can defeat this disillusionment? And this is what the next part is. This teaching here on the Lord's Supper, we, we proof text so many things. We're like, how can I learn about the Lord's Supper? Here's some verses, and we pull it out of its context. The context of this teaching on the Lord's Supper is about what does it look like for the church to continue to gather together when things are so messed up? What is our unity? What holds us together? And he tells us right here in verses 23. Notice verse 23, For I received to you from the Lord. This is important. Jesus has designed this. Jesus has designed this. Oh man, there, if you want to be a red letter Christian or whatever that is, then like we're going to listen to Jesus, right? If you're thinking, I don't like Paul, I like Jesus. Well, I think it's all God's word, we think it is, but let's say Jesus. Jesus designed this. He's the one who unites us as a family. It was his call to gather at the table. You know, I love preaching, but Jesus did not say, preach a 30 to 45 minute sermon every week, but he said, do this in remembrance of me. Come together around a table in my name and in my finished work. While we read in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 that this was the norm of the church. It said, when they gathered on the first day of the week to break bread. It's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just one chapter before, he's saying that when you come together, this is not merely some religious ritual. You are actually participating together in the union you have with Christ and the union together. This was his practical path we're seeing here, that the church would be one like he prayed they would be in John 17. And like we said earlier, this Lord's Supper was designed to not take place in the more individualistic way and sense that we will do it in a minute, but it was to take place in this familial atmosphere. And again, this is one big reason why as a church we, we, we want to call people to join in these family meals that we have during the week because it really is an overflow, a connection to what they were doing around the Lord's table. It's a way we gather in our Sunday gathering around the body and the blood and the cup, and then we scatter as the church in our family meals. Verses 24 and 25 show us that we, we continue to gather in spite of the disillusionment, not only because Jesus has designed that we would do this around his finished work, but because Jesus died that we would do this. He did not merely die and rise so that we would be individual Christians. He didn't merely die and rise so that we would come on a Sunday gathering. He didn't merely die and rise that we would say we are the church in some sort of theoretical way. He didn't even merely die and rise that we would be a part of the universal church of all people in times and places. 
He died for our sins and rose to make us the family of God that would get together around bread and cup. The bread. You can't read verse chapter 10 and we don't have time and not see that, the, that there's a dual meaning that goes on. Even this bread's pointing beyond itself. In chapter Here it's the body of Christ broken, but in chapter 10... The bread is a picture of the unity of the church as well. That's why they talk about they tear from one loaf. Because they're one people. The cup, yes, it's about the forgiveness that we have, but this cup is connected to the new covenant. What is the new covenant? The new covenant is the promise that we have forgiveness of sins, but we also have the enablement and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But in all the Bible, when you hear language of covenant, it's about a covenant community. A covenant people. We have to remember who we are, but we need to remember how we are. A great price was paid that we might be the people of God and display that through the way that we gather and love one another as family. So verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. If you are a person who is about proclaiming the victory of King Jesus, then the gathering of the church around the Lord's table should be at the top of your list. It proclaims His finished work that He has reconciled us with God and He has reconciled us with one another. So this is why these verses in 27 through 32 are given in the degree of seriousness that they're giving. Oftentimes, these verses are spoken of in such an individualistic manner. Many of us who have been a part of churches, go to verse 27, please. We go to churches, you grew up taking the Lord's Supper, and, and this is kind of how it's framed. Super, right, individualistic. And it's like, now I want everybody to examine themselves to see if they have, have any personal sin in their life. And if you have any individual sin, you need to, this is your opportunity to get right with God. That's still a great thing to do, by the way. Nothing wrong with that. But these verses in this context are not talking about that. These verses in this context are saying, do you have an unreconciled relationship with someone in the family of God? that you are not going to deal with, then you need to examine yourself. Because to do so, to say, I don't care, is to eat the bread and drink the cup in a manner unworthy of the body and blood of the Lord. This is not merely a conflict resolution issue when you have an issue with somebody in the family of Christ. It's a gospel issue. This is why verse 28, we're, we're provided this weekly, this regular opportunity to reflect on where we stand with the family of God under the Father who is God. It's why Jesus says, I, he, he's saying... I know you're going to be disillusioned with family. 
I know people are going to hurt you. I know people are going to disappoint you. Do you believe I'm bigger than that? Jesus said, I don't want you to lie about that. Because when you come to the table and you say, I don't care about reconciliation. What does the gospel even mean? When you come to the table and you say, I, I'll do this with this person here, but I wouldn't have them over to my home. When you, come, when you take this bread and cup in a minute, but there's somebody else in here you're giving the cold shoulder to, that you're saying I'm not going to deal with them unless they do it on my terms, you are profaning the body and the blood of Christ. How serious does God take this? Well, this is why we see these words. This is why some of you are weak and ill, verse 30, and died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That God loves us. He's our good father. It's his family. He wants his kids to be reconciled. He wants them to love one another. He wants them to work through it. Just imagine someone who paid a lot of money to get their family together and nobody shows up for it because they're mad at each other. Or they show up and they're fake. God has planned for, paid for, and provided for our gatherings as a family. So how can we remain faithful when family life is so messy and so disillusioning? First off, Jesus has to be Lord of the church. Lord of our life. We've got to have a theology of the church that's bigger than the mess. We've touched on this some and already so way out of time, but the church's family is not a metaphor. It's who Jesus says we are. We're brothers. We're sisters. Jesus, they said to him in Mark chapter 3, Hey, Jesus, your family's out here looking for you. And Jesus said, Who is my family? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Who is my mothers? It's those who do the will of God. This isn't just proof text. It's the whole story of God. Of a father who adopts us and makes us family and calls us to live in love. We are family. We are family. And when we gather with undealt reconciliation, reconciliation issues, we tell the world about what it means for God to be our Father and what it means for us to be family, regardless of what our doctrine is on a paper. So we must have a theology of the church that's deeper than our disillusions. We must create a careful perspective of the church. We, we as a church family have grown in this. And we're a part of a larger family of churches known as Salma. You can look that up from the very beginning. Salma's Greek for body. We're going to be the body of Christ. We're going to be the family but you learn and you grow. So we don't want to ever diminish what Jesus said about us being family. He said, who are my mothers and brothers? It's, it's you guys. But we can't exaggerate that either. This is where we get in trouble in our zeal. You know, Jesus, one of the critiques he had for the Pharisees was because they shaped the law so that they no longer had to care for their biological parents. You can go look this up in Mark chapter 7. And Jesus said, you're not fulfilling the law by saying you love the church so much that you don't care for your immediate biological family. 
Paul write, the same one writing this in 1 Timothy 5.8, anyone who does not provide for his relatives, for his immediate household, is worse than an unbeliever. Don't diminish it, but don't exaggerate it. Don't diminish organic family. We are brothers and sisters. But also don't exaggerate it to the point that where if you hear people talk about elders and deacons and members, that all of a sudden you're like, I don't do that organized stuff. I believe in church as family. Well, that's in the Bible too. Don't diminish the fact that although we are family and we don't want to be individualistic, that guess what? You are still an individual. And you should feel no guilt, fear, or shame for that. Jesus spent a lot of time alone. And we should too. We are family, but we all still have individual selves. And if your identity is solely wrapped up in how everybody else around here loves you, then get ready for a heartbreak that you might not come back from. But don't exaggerate that. Jesus always came back to the family. He always came back. His bride. We must also access our expectations as a family around grace and not guilt. The table should remind us this as well. Some of you in here are going to go through seasons of life where you feel very lonely. And your gut reaction might be is, people don't want to spend time with me. Well, guess what? They have a story going on in their lives too. Sometimes it may be that they are just mean and cruel and inconsiderate. People are that way. But sometimes people are facing depressions, anxieties, issues that we don't really know about, and maybe sometimes they don't even know about. That's one thing I like to consider. It's like sometimes other people are going through stuff they're not even aware they're going through. They've got issues in their life they've not dealt with or known how to deal with. We've got to have grace. A lot of you in here are college students. You may hear us talking about family, and you're thinking, I'm hanging out in my dorm room all week with all these people, and we're living community. And then I step into this church, and they're talking about community and family too. So I, now all of a sudden I think that means we'll be hanging out every night. Well, on the other side of that is the family with multiple children playing sports and in school and working full-time jobs and dealing with all their mess. And so they're thinking, if we get together and have one meal a week with these other people, that's going to take a great sacrifice against the American dream. And what the enemy's going to do is he tries to pit us against each other. The Lord's Supper tells us our unity is bigger and better than our wish dream, as Bonhoeffer says, of what family should be. The Lord's Supper calls us to grace, not to be the critic, to be the contributor. This is why one reason as a church we emphasize this, this family dynamic is like, we're brothers and sisters. We're the priesthood of believers. Like, 
Instead of getting calloused and critical, why don't you lead what you want the church to be? Why don't you be the chief encourager and grace motivator? If you don't think people are getting together enough, well, what can you do to help get them together? I guarantee you people aren't going to resent that if you do it in a way that isn't comparative and critical. People are going to be thankful for that. What if we allow one another to the safety and the space to grow in our time as brothers and sisters? And what if in all that we remember the beauty of the church as family? I guarantee you, 100,000%, there's people in this neighborhood, there's people you're, you're, you know, and you're, maybe even in your, your school experience, who don't even have somebody to have one meal a week with where they feel seen and loved and known. Who would love to be called and gathered together around people who show grace to one another and don't guilt and shame and critique one another all the time. This is why our text ends the way that it does. Verses 33 and 34. With this reiteration and this call to remember we're family. So then, my brother. To the assumption we'll come together. Again, in light of all that, Paul doesn't say, don't do this. When you come together. Not if you come together. When you come together. And then the last verse is, wait. What's that talking about? Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you'll come together, it won't be for judgment. It won't be... Because if you come together, if you take this bread and this cup in a minute, if you come together at family meal, and you're coming together pretending like things are cool with other people, and you're not dealing with it, or you're saying the ball's in their court, and you've not been faithful, like, that's for judgment. That's, that's God like... I'm, there's discipline to be done here. But when you come waiting, what does waiting infer? Waiting is hard. Waiting takes sacrifice. Waiting says, I'm not putting you in my timeline. Waiting is deference. Waiting is love. And isn't that how Jesus loved us? Oh, how patient he is with us. Aren't we thankful he did not wait for us to get our act together before he came for us? Aren't we thankful he didn't wait till we understood everything how we under, he understands it? Aren't we thankful for a Savior who gave his body and blood to make us one? This is why Jesus says, when you come to the altar to make a sacrifice in Matthew 5, and you realize you have something that's not reconciled with your brother or sister, don't do anything else until you do that. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if you want to go check me on that. Don't lie about my reconciling love. But don't be led to go and reconcile because it's just the right thing to do. He led to do it because of how much I've loved you. Drop the cold shoulder. Drop the distant act. Because that's proclaiming the gospel. 
I want to end this morning just by reading Philippians 2, and then we'll partake of the Lord's table, a portion from it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the gospel, and it's the gospel we portray to the world when we love each other in humility, when we reconcile when we've been hurt, when we tell the world of a gospel that forms a family where a good father leads the way. God, we thank you for Jesus, for his finished work. We thank you that we have been made one with you and one with each other. We ask now that you would bring to our minds, just as Jesus asked us to as his disciples, anything that we need to work on with somebody else that we're family with, whether here or not here. Someone in this gathering, someone in our missional community. We pray, God, that you would help us to see that you will help us. We pray, God, that any who need help would reach out to leaders in this church and ask for help. We pray, God, that we would follow Jesus your way for your glory. Amen. Well, as we come now and a little more uh, connected today than usual through our time each week of partaking of the Lord's table. Again, if we were not in COVID season, we'd be around some tables now, but we are. But under your, ta- under your seat, you should find a bread and a cup. But one way that we do this is in, to do it in the most communal way that we can, apart from the way we will overflow into our family times this week, is by a moment of reflection. As our text said, we want to discern the body. So if you just close your eyes right now for the sake of focus, we're going to underline this question this week that our text underlines. The call to self-examination is not a call merely to consider the individual sin that we may have, but any division that's not been dealt with through the way of Jesus. So ask yourself right now, am I unreconciled with a fellow follower of Jesus? Doesn't mean your best friends, maybe. But there's, there's no barrier that's left there that causes you to, to treat someone in a way that you wouldn't treat brother or sister that has been bought and brought together into God's family through Jesus. I want to ask you based on God's word to consider either not taking of the bread and cup this morning or taking it 
in the full commitment that you are going to go and pursue that alone or with the help of another disciple this week. Also listen in view of these things that affect us as a family. What idols do I need to bring to the table and hear Jesus giving me forgiveness? What wounds do I need to bring to the table and hear Jesus offering me healing? What lies do I need to bring to the table and hear Jesus speaking truth and deliverance? can lift your eyes now, take and tear the top of your thing and pull the bread out. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now take and pull back to the the cup. Jesus said, this is my blood, the new covenant given for you. Drink in remembrance of me. Pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ask, God, that we would not walk from here in hardness.